I was walking in the wholesale flower district that day. And I passed by this place where this old Chinese man, he sometimes sells me weird and exotic cuttings. Because he knows, you see, that strange plants are my hobby. He didn't have anything unusual there that day. So I was just about to, you know, walk on by. When suddenly, and without warning, there was this... Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. All right, so, hello, welcome to The Contrarians. You have to sing it, you have to sing it, I, I was kidding, you have to sing it. <laughs> hello, welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, um, episode number 29. As always, my name is Alex, joined here by my buddy Julio. Julio, I am excited. Are, are you excited? I am excited because after we finish recording this, about two oh. weeks will pass. Oh, oh. And then you and I will sit together and watch Joe Carnahan's A-Team. And I, I we will was, rejoice. I was wondering, what is it that's keeping Alex Mattis sane through this movie? Why is it that he hasn't just like walked out and and then uh, that makes sense. This is just like the last step before the A-Team. Exactly. Well, you know, Oren Trevello, Steve Martin <laughs> kept me going for a while. I really was into that, but... Um, so we are here for episode number 29. We concluded our uh, two-part series on 48 Hours. We visited Ryan Reynolds' Green Lantern, and now we are here before we hit the milestone, episode number 30 for the A-Team. We are here back to 1986 for Little Shop of Horrors, starring the incomparable and timeless Rick Moranis. Uh, now, before we go any further, Julio, do you have some quotes for us, sir? Yes. This movie, much beloved uh, by... 90-something percent of people on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, some of them, uh, like Marjorie Baumgarten from the Austin Chronicle, uh, think that it has aged about as well as any film about a singing houseplant with an appetite for flesh could. Um, which is like almost like a reluctant uh, praise. It's like a backhanded compliment. It's, yeah. it's a compel salt, as they say on a Community. Compel salt, yes, yeah. Uh, but she's, you know, she that's like... The minority. Most people are like Rob Vox from Flipside Movie Emporium, who says it takes a little genius to turn a Z-grade Corman horror flick into a hit musical comedy, and a little more to successfully return it to the big screen. So that's a backhanded compliment. How dare you, to Corman? What's his name? 
That is Rob Vox. Rob Vox, how dare you? Yeah, actually, that's not even a backhanded compliment. That's just like a backhand to, to Corman. Fuck you, <laughs> Rob Vox. Uh, Jeremy Hellman or Heilman from moviemartyr.com says the film represents a rare example where Hollywood has applied itself rigorously to material that might somehow seem beneath it with wholly satisfying results. Another dig at Corman. Yeah. That's that's not cool, guys. Uh, well, what do you expect from a goddamn website called moviemartyr.com? <laughs> that's right. Uh, Paul Adanasio from Washington Post says, Screenwriter and lyricist Howard Ashman has mastered the essence of 80s humor, recycling the old with a hip knowingness, all with a morbid, outrageous edge. No Corman dig there, so at least we'll respect that. Thank you. Uh, and let's close with uh, these two guys, just one-liners. Kevin A. Ranson from moviecrypt.com says, It's the professionalism that I admire. And then Michael A. Smith from Nolan's Pop Culture Review, he simply says, I am in love with Ellen Green. Interesting. Not not my type. A bit too skinny for me, but I can, I can see that. Um, so, yes, Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, we get kind of a Star Wars-esque scrolling text at the beginning. Which is it's a problem from the beginning because you are going to compare it to Star Wars from any time that you see a, a, a scrolling text, then you know that that's where your mind's going to go. So they were setting themselves themselves up for failure from the get-go. Well, I think in many ways. But uh, we're told that it happens in a time not so long before our own, uh, meaning uh, not so long before 1986. Uh, we hear pretty much, I think, in the first five minutes of the movie, they say President Kennedy on the radio, so 1960s. Um, Notes. So it's that alternate timeline where there was... Where, that, the, where the comedian <laughs> assassinates <laughs> yes. JFK. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, from all I was able to find, we're supposed to believe that it was in the 1960s. Well, I think, uh, just jumping a little bit ahead, I think Audrey's dream of what it would be like uh, if he ever hooked up with, with Rick Moranis, mm. her dream life is very 50s yeah. in, in the sense of what it feels to be an accomplished woman back then. That's also golden age thinking. But uh, yeah, notes are pretty minimal for this, I realize, now just kind of looking at my, my skadoodle. Um, <laughs> I guess that's the, the tale with most musicals because you can't really document what happens during the musical numbers. But uh, our, we're immediately introduced to our main character, uh, Seymour Krellborn, played by Rick Moranis, as we mentioned. Um, he is... Uh, he's one of, Rick Moranis. He's Rick Moranis. He's one of two employees at Muchnick's Flower Shop down there on Skid Row. Um, the other employee, of course, being Audrey, played by Ellen Green. Uh, immediately, the first you know quarter of the film is just meant to establish that they both have a tough life and uh, a and tough Skid, job. Yeah, and Skid Row sucks. Yeah, exactly. That is, which I just not the band. The band is quite fine, but I guess. But <laughs> Skid Row, it's just. It sucks as a place, and they they take at least two musical numbers to establish how badly it sucks. And it it gave me pause just from the very beginning because every time I see something like this, uh, where people are setting up this scenario where they're like trapped in this bad neighborhood, my first thought is, why don't they just move? Mm-hmm. It's not like they're chained to Skid Row. It's not like they're being trapped in a cellar in in Skid Row. It, you could pack up and leave. Uh, Rick Moranis and and Audrey. They everyone in this movie is stalker chaining in Greece. 
Yes, they they you know they have free will. I I'll give Mr. It's not Mr. Mushnick. Mushnick. Yeah, Mushnick. <laughs> I'll give Mr. Mushnick, the owner of the of the plant shop that they uh, where they all work. Uh, I'll give him a pass because he actually he's made an investment. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of like put roots down in Skid Row. I don't know why. But it, but maybe he thought at the time it looked like a. a, a oh, he's a basically Jimmy Stewart, speech. and it's a Wonderful Life. He, you know, oh, he's afraid of going out. He he has to stay there. It's either that or just gun everybody down. Well, it, here's the thing: like <laughs> he meets his Mister Potter soon <laughs> enough. <laughs> yes. Pun intended. Uh, this guy and Moranis and Audrey. I mean, for all that we dislike Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. He was at least more charismatic than Moranis and and Audrey here. They. They're just they come across as like these whiny adults that if well, these, if for the these Audrey, were teenagers, I mean, I would understand. Oh, okay, they're just being angsty because they're being teenagers and they don't realize that hey, the world is your oyster. You could just like hitchhike out of Skid Row, but they're like, oh my god, I don't know what to do. This place sucks. Okay, well, you know, get on a bus and get out of there. And this movie's damning of the Audrey character right away because we're introduced to her and she has a big black eye and she starts immediately making excuses for the dude who decked her. Dude, the. The, the Audrey character is such a huge problem in this movie. <laughs> I I don't know what it's like to be a woman and watch this movie, but I can imagine it's not pleasant at all. Mm. It, it would just be like it would just fill you with indignation. So basically, the you know Muchnick's flower shop, uh, Mister Muchnick, as we lovingly named him, the poor man's uh, John, Goodman. John Goodman. Yeah, uh, not doing the business, not bringing home the bacon. You know, there's nothing really that looks appeasing. Uh, flower. I guess the flower game was down at this point in time, but when Audrey recommends, you know, hey, uh, Seymour, bring out one of those exotic plants that you've been working on, and you know, he brings up this little thing in a coffee can that looks like a, a Snapdragon, a Venus flytrap, excuse me, uh, and he, he named it Audrey 2, and we get another musical number explaining how he found it, uh, <laughs> in which they managed to accomplish uh, kind of, uh, I think, xenophobia and also uh, <laughs> racism all in one uh we were lead into we're led into this musical number by the first of many very very brief cameos by famous comedians uh, christopher guest comes into the store and asks point blank hey what's the story with that weird plant and mm-hmm. that leads into the uh into the musical number which is this is the one time that one of those cameos is successful as as they uh, as the story progresses and we get like other comedians coming in, it just starts. It just started getting on my nerves, and mm-hmm. in my notes, I just have like, uh, you know, Christopher Guest comes in for a bit, and then you know somebody else comes in and they do their bit and so on until it's just it, it just feels really gimmicky. It's just like a, a, a Mad Lib fill in the blank type thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it's. It really there's like this Asian man selling plants, uh, mm-hmm. and and he has like a big long mustache and like a knot top, and he looks like he should be fighting Iron Man in the comics from like the sixties. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's a total eclipse of the sun at this point in time, and uh, lightning strikes this one plant that was never there before, and the really like part that was like, man, that's racist as shit. Is it's like. <laughs> It wasn't there before, but the Chinaman sold it to me anyway. Like it was, it's pretty intense. I mean, this movie was made in the eighties, so that was wrong already. It's not like okay, it's said in the fifties, so we can get away with saying this. It's still that's not cool, guys. And also, you know, we've kind of uh, uh, skipped over a big element of the movie. Actually, before we even meet Simmer, we meet 
the chorus made up of three sassy black women. I'm sorry, yeah, that 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 kicks us off. They're basically the conscience of this film. Yes, they, uh, but they are sassy. Mm-hmm. They 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 don't just sing. They they talk back a couple times to to other characters, which I haven't really got. Like, I guess they're supposed to be the conscience of like the story because they're characters that don't have names, but they're also they lead the musical interludes. Yeah, yeah, and and they. I mean, I guess, like in the Greek sense of uh, of of drama and whatever, you know, that's like the chorus was supposed to, you know, be a counterpart to whatever else was going on. But uh, I I applaud the attempt at adding some depth to the story by having a, a chorus like commenting on what's going on and trying to provide a different point of view. But I don't know that uh, that it succeeds because in the end, I guess the biggest way of of, of telling if they're relevant or not it's like what happens if you take them take them out of the movie and if you take them out of the movie it's still the same movie yeah exactly it, it's it sucks the same whether you, you put cut about 10 out. minutes out of the movie <laughs> but, yeah, yeah that's true after the recant of the story christopher guest you know kind of kickstarts he puts the jumper cables on the business there for much nick's flower shop as uh, everyone's coming in now they need to see that weird plant in the doorway or in the window excuse me and you know business really picks up they're doing the best business they've done in quite some time um and it looks like Audrey too has stopped growing and, you know, it's kind of, you know, and at this point Seymour's feeling the pressure of, you know, this is my creation. I need to keep it going type of thing. And, uh, what happens? He's throwing away rose stems and he cuts his finger open. Yeah. He pricks himself with, uh, uh, with thorns Mm -hmm. and he goes like, damn roses, damn thorns. (laughs) He's just like, he's so Moranis. This might be Rick Moranis distilled to the, core moraniness that you could get and i was watching and it was like he's kind of i mean that's fine you can be an actor and be just yourself the entire time because you're still performing mm-hmm. you know but he is kind of like like a comedic tom sizemore in which like you know exactly what you're getting when you get when you cast rick moranis and this is exactly what you would expect as much as i can appreciate that i don't think rick moranis has ever given a performance like tom sizemore natural born killers well he hasn't been he hasn't been given the chance that's true he's he stepped away Dude, cast Rick Moranis in the Sizemore role in Natural Born Killers, and that movie would not be a gray area episode. That would have been a picture Rick Moranis telling Juliette Lewis to twist his nipple. (laughs) That's needs to happen. So he figures out that the plant now has established that it feasts on blood, and he basically figures this out with his bloody finger. He waves it around. It, you know, kind of gets it detected every time he gets it close, he tries to snap. So he suspends it above, kind of like giving a little dog a treat and uh, dips a few drops of blood into it, which, you know, um, weird. It's weird. And it's uh, I mean, it's weird that it's happening, but it's even weirder than Moranis is not bothered by this. He's just kind of he's a little bummed that he has to give it the plan his blood. But he's never like. There's never like a freak out moment where like, mm-hmm. holy shit, what's going on here? This is like, this is not a plant. You hear about these porn stars from time to time um, that you know uh, realize what their life has become, and they break down crying on set or like run off set. <laughs> they have like a moment of clarity, and then you have these others that just will do whatever. Seymour Krellborn is the guy who will do whatever. He yeah, just he, sees, all right, it wants my blood. Fuck it. Here you go. And like, he, 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 I'll pee on it. I don't care what I have to do to get this going here. He yeah. does it without hesitation. He doesn't, yeah. He, he like, he figures out pretty quickly that it wants blood and then he just starts just squeezing his, his cut finger, uh, so he can get some, some drops in. And it was just, I was thinking, 
is he just dumb or, or is he just it's an abusive relationship it's like he he created his own girlfriend in audrey too and he will do whatever it takes to appease her which you know you could give points to the filmmaker for saying okay you're establishing several abusive relationships because of course audrey turns out you know she's in the she shows up with a black eye. Any way you horrible... cut it with Audrey, you know, she, <laughs> she is entering herself into an abusive relationship. Yeah, but but there is... Uh, here's my main problem with the movie. It's just that it doesn't give you anybody to root for. Because as lovable as Moranis can be, like we said, well, he's not Jimmy Stewart. And he's just dumb. I was like, have yeah. you never played like Super Mario Brothers? I mean, that that little plan, that's not going to do you any good. He <laughs> seems so surprised by the fact that eventually he wants to take over the world. Well, yeah, that's... What did you expect? So he's just he's just so dumb it irritated me the entire movie. And Audrey's no better. The mm-hmm. smartest person is kind of Mr. Mushkin. Mushnik. Mushkin. I'm gonna keep calling him a munchkin. <laughs> uh yeah. Uh Mr. Mushnik, he's he's kind of the smartest guy and, and even then, I mean, that's just because it's not hard to be the smartest person at Skid Row, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't end well anyway this point in the film you know it's obvious from you know square one that seymour is smitten with audrey hence him naming the plant audrey too but we find out that audrey has you know f- infatuation with seymour and which makes no sense at all it, there is no yeah why what would they talk about having i don't know her dresses and uh, i guess imagine them coming out of interstellar and kind of like you know trying to process it together i think it's just one of those things where like the grass is always greener Mm -hmm. uh and even like her big something green yeah her Mm -hmm. big her big song like which is one of those things that you're dreading from the beginning of the movie from the moment she's introduced because she has there's no nice way of putting it her voice is just and just so we set the record straight her dream her life in paradise is to marry Rick Moranis and be a 50s housewife where she stays home all day with her, with the gals going over Tupperware and making dinner for the kids. And not even like a realistic 50s person. She's just like the She has like the Beetlejuice of, house in mind. When yeah, she, yeah. This is not like the 50s as seen by uh, Mad Men. This is like the 50s like in a catalog like a kaleidoscope yes it it was just so bad but but it's also one of the things like you're dreading you know she's gonna get her own musical number sooner rather than later and you've heard her speak for about 20 minutes before this happens you're like god what's gonna happen when she starts singing and it's just as terrible as you thought it was gonna be (laughs) it's uh i mean i'm sure it's not the actress's fault that's just on frank oz who just decided to go with that take on the character but it's just it's grating and of course, on top of that, she's just singing about living in this this dollhouse mm-hmm. and uh, having two kids that are look just like her and Rick Moranis. <laughs> Not promising in no. this relationship. But so, yeah, but in the end, I mean, she is dating a bad boy. And so she, of course, suddenly feels attracted to the complete opposite, which is Moranis. As you do. Clear dad issues. Yes. Uh, so Seymour becomes a bit of a local celebrity. Um, you know, the, the local papers are kind of there seeing what's going on. It leads to him being on uh, Wink Wilkinson's radio show. Wink Wilkinson, Wink Wilkinson, played by John Candy. Jesus. Uh, John Candy comes in for a bit. John Candy, yeah. He ha- he basically has his Super Bowl commercial where he's in there for 30 seconds. And all this scene made me do was... It left me thinking, what could have been? What if John Candy was Mr. Mushnick? Or, you know, uh, yeah, what if John Candy had a bigger role in this? Because like he tends to do in the, the short time he's given, he just steals the screen. 
he he does, but at the same time, I I felt it. You know what I mean? Like with, with Christopher Guest, he comes in and it's very it's very fluid. It, it it moves the story forward. He comes in and he asks about the plant, and that's I can says, see that. But John Candy, he comes in and the movie just stops so he can be funny for like thirty seconds, mm-hmm. and and he was funny, but at the same time, I'm like, wow, this is obviously just like just the, for him to be funny. Yeah, it's like the John Candy minute, mm-hmm. and then you know just move along. And, and so I felt like it was a little manipulated. It also revealed a, a, a weakness on the part of filmmaker. You know, it's like he, it's like he knew that his material wasn't strong enough, so he had to like add the gimmicks. Gotcha. It's like uh, in Green Lantern, just like the ridiculous lengths they went to to find Ryan Reynolds with his shirt off. It's just like, hey, this is what he can add to the film. <laughs> we are finally introduced to Audrey's boyfriend, Oren Shrivello, played by Steve Martin, who looks like 2016 Jerry only, and it is amazing. And he is a badass biker, um, but more importantly, he is a dentist. Yes. And as I said, after we finish this up, you know, say what you will about this, but this was my favorite sequence of the film where it turns out he's just a malicious dentist because that's, that's perfect. It's true. Everyone can relate to that. I, I think that like many Isaac elements, Yankum. like many elements in this movie, it's just, it's good in its own, but when you put it together with the rest of the movie, it just stands out in a weird way. I'll, Steve Martin, I mean, everybody is very hyper-realistic in this movie, and that's just being generous. Really? <laughs> a nastier way would be to say that they just yeah. overact the hell out of him. Yeah, Rick Moranis is Rick Moranis. <laughs> right, Rick Moranis is, is Rick Moranis, and everybody's just trying to match him. But Steve Martin, he's like the Ethan Embry of this movie. He just <laughs> he, he doesn't just go for it, but he goes for it, he takes it, and he just turns it upside down it's just he every single move he doesn't move like a normal person he moves like a cartoon and, yeah and it's really funny except that everybody else in the movie is just like if he said at 20 they're like at a 15 and it it really it can be jarring he looks like he's in cool world <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> and and the black hair doesn't help because we all know steve martin has always had white hair yes <laughs> so it's just it's just shocking it's more shocking than martin sheen's hair in the american president it's just it, it, it i literally think if you more. watch the first season of saturday night live steve martin has white hair <laughs> he was born with white hair at this point after we get our big introduction to uh Oren, um audrey too can talk this is something we did not know uh, and is voiced by levi stubbs just a real deep bellowing voice that's made for singing. And we find out, you know, Audrey 2 is too big for, you know, drops of blood now. It needs to feast. Feed me, it says. And basically it tells Rick Moranis you have to kill people. And he's like, well, I can't do that. It, it takes one musical number <laughs> to, convince, <laughs> to convince Moranis that, okay, I'll do it. I'll kill Oren. And it's... I don't know. There are so many alternatives to murdering a person. Yes. <laughs> you know, he suggests at some point he's like, okay, I'll go get you some meat. And the plant is like, no. And then Moran is like, okay, it's the same thing. I'll get you a body. Yeah. I mean, obviously the the plant, if, it's, if it was just about the food, then meat from a butcher, that would be the same. Yeah. You know, but obviously the 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 plan is just getting off of actually eating human beings. And it goes back to the abusive relationship where, you know, uh, Seymour just wants to do anything to please what Right, he and the plan just wants it the way it wants it. It, it will not compromise. In some ways, the ex machina storyline. It's pretty much the same thing, only that, you know, they did away with the music. There you go. Well, you know, we had our Oscar Isaac. Well, there was like that one musical. That's a, a an acknowledgement, like a nod to that, its musical roots. That, well, that was the I'm a dentist scene of that film. <laughs> yes. 
so the plan is to kill Oren. So um, see more books and appointment with him. And it's not funny, but like in a really like sadistic moment, hides a revolver in his coat, and he's going to go in there to you know finish him off. Uh, Arthur Denton, played by Bill Murray, which is another one of these. Hey, let's look at this guy scene. Just such a fucking weird scene in this movie. And I understand this is like one of the uh, concurrent things from the Corman onto you know all the presentations of it. Uh, Arthur Denton's character is there to see Oren have a, has a, you know, with Dr. Shravello has an appointment. Uh, he's clearly someone who gets off on pain, uh, an S and M enthusiast, uh, not the Metallica album, but, uh, he goes in there and, you know, uh, Oren's working him over, you know, trying to rip his teeth out and shit. Very, very strange scene. It's it once more, like you said, you know, it's one of those how oh, well he comes in to do his thing for for a couple minutes, and it, it's like uh, the scene uh, overstays its welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it and it's also I don't know. At some point, it just gets so distracting when you cast big players. I know that Bill Murray back then probably was not Bill Murray like he is right now. Yeah. You know, but it's still it's just like oh well, let's just have this this it's stunt big casting moment. It, it, it's stunt casting and stunt like performing because. Mm-hmm. This is for better or for worse. This is Moranis' story, and but then for about five minutes, it becomes uh, uh, Bill Murray's story. Mm-hmm. And it, he, it's like Chris Tucker in The Fifth Element. It's just like yeah, yeah, it's like you know, tone it down. This is not about you. Yeah, and it, it was the same thing with with Murray. And it, I don't know. I, it reminds me every time you know Key and Peele. Every time that uh, that Key shows up in a movie, mm-hmm. he he just does that thing where I'm like, you're funny, but. You need to calm down because the movie's not about you. <laughs> it, the same thing. That's how I feel about all the all the guest spots in, in this one. So uh, yeah, Murray shows up and he's there and he just he steals the movie. Yeah, I guess. And it's another thing too. Murray's comedy is always so understated, and this he's just like you know far overreaching. It feels like something from Natural Born Killers because he's so he's like Tommy Lee Jones in Natural Born Killers, yes. so over the top. Yeah, it's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he actually he gives uh, Steve Martin a run for his money <laughs> when they're together. That's <laughs> Almost at the same level. So after that, you know, once uh, Steve Martin figures out that, you know, his patient Arthur Denton is enjoying it, he kicks him out, you know, because I'm the only one who's able to get off on this. Then he grabs Seymour and throws him in the chair and he keeps shooting himself full of, uh, you know, the gas, the night night gas, the nitrous oxide. And, um, you know, he puts on this weird fucking Rob Zombie inspired helmet that, you know, pumps the laughing gas into him. And at that point in time, Moranis pulls out his gun and he's going to kill him. But basically what happens is uh, Oren, Steve Martin, overdoses on this gas. Yeah, which is the movie pussing out from having Moranis actually kill him. But still... Have the basketball diary scene where Rick Moranis (laughs) pops a cap in him. That would have really made me like sit up and pay attention. It's suddenly, oh, Moranis should he turns into a and killer. the movie ends there, and Ed Norton is coddling Steve Martin. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, uh, you thought it was about the big plan from outer space, but no, it's about Moranis killing a man and having Frank to God answer being like, "Fuck y'all." <laughs> Uh, but no, that's not what happens. Instead, the movie wants to have its cake and eat it. He, the movie wants to have its dead dentist, but mm-hmm. not blame Moranis for it. Uh, so he just ODs on gas. Because we can't, you know, honestly, with all we've been through, even in 
2016. We can't see Rick Moranis killing someone. But we can see him awesome shrinking some kids. I mean, no, but if we could, can you imagine? I mean, then then I would understand this movie being so so highly praised because that's the movie that turned Rick Moranis into a killer. We can see him putting his family in immediate danger, <laughs> shrinking him to the point where they could be killed by an ant. But that's all well intentioned. But, but shooting Steve Martin is something we cannot comprehend. Oh man, the world that we would live in right now if that had happened in 1986, <laughs> Rick Moranis murderer. Uh, so he, you know, bags up Warren, brings him back, fucking chops him up, takes an axe and chops him up, and he feeds him to Audrey too. Which, you know, much to the light of this creature, he's just chowing down on Steve Martin. He's not very careful though. Uh, I mean, he's a terrible criminal to begin with. Yeah. But but he just he's extra careless and doesn't even realize that his boss is watching the entire time. Well, even if you watch like. He drags the body. There's like a clear trail of blood right. where he drags the yeah. body. So, yeah. Patrick Bateman, he is not. Oh, no. Of course not. Somehow, this leads to more bonding between Audrey and Seymour. Uh, after, you know, the police interrogate her and said, you know, hey, have you seen him? You know what it feels like? It feels like like the movie took the beats of a much darker story and then removed the darkness. In the, you know what and I mean? replaced it with music. Yeah, because I could see this. Yeah, they would bond over that if Seymour was like this really fucked up character that got off on murdering the <laughs> dentist. And now suddenly he's like, oh, yeah, that was cool. And let's bond. But no, instead, because they keep him as like this this puppy dog level of innocence. And I'm like, oh, well, he kind of died. And then I just chopped him up. And so it doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so they somehow bond over that, you know, and uh, suddenly Seymour, which I will be playing at this point in the podcast, comes into play. Suddenly Seymour is standing beside me. He don't give me your eyes. He don't come his But, you know, she may be blind, but Mr. Mushnick's not. He saw he saw the whole goings downs. He's he's hip to the game, and he confronts Seymour about it at gunpoint. He's like, you know, fucker, I know what you did. Is it the same gun? <laughs> There's a, that gun, I could swear it's the same gun. It shows up three times in the movie. <laughs> this is basically what I wanted from this was... Uh, Basically, all things considered, I really just wanted Rick Moranis to be Paul Dano's character in Prisoners. <laughs> and I wanted this to be the scene where Muchnick was uh, Hugh Jackman just beating the shit out of him. Tell me! Tell me where he is! Uh, so he's hip to it, and he's got him at gunpoint, and he's about to walk in. You know, we're going down to the sheriff's department, boy. And then he walks him to the door, and he realizes, you know, oh, wait. You know, maybe I could get you a ticket out of town if you tell me how to how to raise this thing, you know? Which, again, as a movie, just pussing out. Because uh, what happens next is Audrey 2 eats Mr. Munchkin. Mushnick. <laughs> Mr. Mushnick. With the assistance of uh, Seymour, though. He pushes him Right. Into it. But, but, see, that would be much darker if he had proven to be a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody that was concerned that Seymour killed someone, and now he's going to turn him into authorities. And then But Seymour, he was really just crooked. Right. Then they just at the last minute, because there's been no indication that he was that kind of man, but at the last minute, because they 
needed Seymour to still be sympathetic, even mm-hmm. though he lets him die. Uh, then they turn him into this kind of asshole that. Oh no, he he was him. he was literally Vince McMahon in the scene. He was like, oh no, wait a minute, let's uh, let's talk this over. Yeah, it, it's like they they gave him the new pages like on that day. Yeah. Like, oh, no, 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 wait, no, 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 no. We decided we're going to we, compromise your entire character. It's a musical now, <laughs> <laughs> so you you need to be more of a bad guy now. And so the owner of the flower shop up and disappears. Never to be seen again. Or questioned. Or questioned. Yeah, nobody because ever wonders what Because Seymour becomes the cock of the walk. <laughs> it's still fucking Mushnick's flower shop. And Seymour is, you know, fucking Elian Gonzalez. He's the biggest celebrity we've had this side of the Mississippi. It's fucking, you know, it's Seymour mania. And, you know, there's all the reporters there. And by this point, Audrey, too, is the size of half of the fucking shop. And they're trying to do a story, and Audrey 2 falls over, and the person says, like, we need to feed it. Where's the plant food? And he's like, you can't feed it. Everyone get out of here. He just has, like, a little, like, breakdown. Uh, but, but speaking of Audrey 2, because the bigger she gets, the more problematic the special effects become. Mm-hmm. I, I know I'm spoiled because we live in this era of awesome digital effects. and Avatar. Uh, exactly. Uh, I, it, there the is, standard bearer. Yes. That's that's really it's before Avatar and after Avatar. That's how filmmaking is is defined these days. But <laughs> religion and two hundred years from now will be decided. You know, <laughs> exactly. B A A A. There, the puppets here because it's all puppets. Audrey's mm-hmm. always it just it's it's a practical effect, and she just looks fake. And I know, well, of course, it's gonna look fake because it's a giant plant that doesn't exist. In I the thought real it was world, just but... Charles Nelson Riley in a big suit. <laughs> just <laughs> it, it could be at this point. At, at some point, you just can't tell because mm-hmm. when she's tiny, it's not that big of a deal. You can kind of deal with it, but but the bigger she gets, then the clunkier it gets. Mm-hmm. It, it just it's all it, lo- it looks really jerky, and it's it's just very distracting. Uh, I guess it makes me appreciate how we the special effects we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really I, makes you appreciate that we don't even need shit anymore. We can just make it all on a computer, right? I mean, uh, the little Shop of Horrors remake, whenever it happens, that that's all gonna be CGI and it's gonna be amazing. Who will do the voice of Audrey too? Denzel, can you sing? <laughs> that would be a that would be a badass Audrey too. Idris Elba. He no, that's he's too busy. He's not because when it gets when it gets remade, it's gonna be like a cult thing. You're not gonna get like super big stars. You're gonna and Denzel's not a super big star. Not anymore, man. He's like what was that's true. Last? He did make Book of Eli. <laughs> that was his last attempt at a, at a legit movie. What was the last big movie that Denzel was in? Oof. Um, shit. What was the chugga chugga choo choo? What was it? <laughs> Unstoppable. Okay, come on now. That's, with Captain Kirk. <laughs> that's not... See, I mean... Okay, okay. So who... Okay, Jessica Chastain would obviously play... Uh, um, Audrey. Audrey, yes. Audrey. Uh, and then we'll get, Bl- we'll get the real John Goodman for Mr... Mushnick. Mushnick. Christopher Guest can reprise his role. Yes. It's just like he, he can be... It's ageless. Uh, Josh Gad is Seymour, of course. 
I was waiting for it. He can fucking sing, dude. He just he crushed those songs. And Seth Rogen would be Wink Wilkerson. He would have the DJ cameo. Seth Rogen will have all the cameos. <laughs> just put different wigs on him. And he just comes in and uh, does his Rogen thing. Except for like the Jonah Hill cameo would be like... That's a brand new one that's just like written in. Just written for that. Yeah. It was like, you know, for the Oscars, whenever they do that thing, like they have to have a new song that can be uh, yeah, nominated for Best Original. So... He'll do one. He'll do one. That'll be like the. It'll be the credit song. I I like this we put together. You know, because he'll be I, better than this. Movie I really am interested now in a Josh Gad Jessica Chastain love storyline. It'd be far more believable than the Rick Moranis. Uh, well, then who would play Orin though? Ah, that's good. It, it should be Crispin Glover. <laughs> okay. We could do with like Zac Efron in that role. I I can see him like he can sing and. He needs he needs that that like new twist on his no he needs a twist on his career too like mm-hmm. he, he needs something uh, uh, that gives him a little more credits he's long past his uh, uh, hairspray days he needs to do another musical oh god hairspray so good ah, I I forgot what part of the podcast we're in sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, out of all this what becomes is Seymour proposes to Audrey you yeah know? oh he, that's suddenly Seymour. Yeah. That's when suddenly Seymour. Well, no, the, so, that reprise oh, is suddenly reprise. Seymour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Suddenly Seymour is like. There's basically just a really long bridge. It's like a James <laughs> Brown performance. <laughs> yes. Like there's this really long, drawn out bridge, and then it, bring it back now. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's probably the worst song in the movie because it's just so demeaning to Audrey as a character. Not that the movie hasn't been beating her down for all its running time, but there's this thing. Where it's just basically they couldn't make it more clear that she's just a damsel in distress and Seymour is here to save her. Mm-hmm. And this song is just basically her accepting him as salvation. Not that it has nothing to do with her coming to terms with her issues of like, oh, well, I obviously there's something wrong with me because I was dating that guy. It, yeah. It's just like, oh, well, now there's a nice guy that's going to tell me how that, to live but my like, life. Fucking Seymour didn't even realize she was in a shitty position. Like <laughs> right. he sees her with a black eye and he says, "Is that new eye makeup?" Yeah. Like, it really takes an evil plan from outer space for him to make a move on this girl, yeah. and and of course, well, he doesn't even know it's from outer space yet. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's later on when he says, outer "That's the space." Yeah, that's the next big problem. Um, you know, they're gonna move away together, and this makes Audrey too very angry. Um, you know, I, I need to eat, feed me, type shit, and. I guess they're readying all their bags when we just need one last cameo. And I guess, uh, okay, in our remake, this would be Paul Giamatti. Yes. <laughs> uh, James Belushi comes in. He's basically just a uh, pitch man. Dude, or- James Belushi hasn't aged. He, I mean, you know, he's had like a couple of wrinkles maybe now, but he's he looks the same. So he shows up. He's trying to like sell the rights. His plan is, you know, we'll get a plant. We'll cut off the leaves and, you know, we'll breed these and there'll be one in every household and, you know, Rick Moranis is his only authoritative scene in the movie. He's just like, just get out of here. You know, throws him out. He shoes Belushi away. Like that would ever happen in real life. There's no. He, it was just missing. It was missing him having a broom, like trying to whisk <laughs> him away from the porch. Um, and you know, it's at this point where we get the big giant monologue, and which leads into the finale song from uh, Audrey Two, where we find out that it was. The thing that came from outer space. Yeah, and Moranis finally figures it out. Well, he doesn't figure it out. It's it's just sung to him. Mm-hmm. And he just goes, outer space. <laughs> in my notes, I literally have written in all caps, outer space. <laughs> yeah. God. 
the message from this movie it's it's a true one it's just i wish it was delivered in a better way but it is like stupid people will be the end of us mm-hmm. and uh well donald trump's about to be president so we should have paid more well no but you know what the problem is that uh and i know that we'll probably get more into this in real talk but uh if you know anything about Little Shop of Horrors, you know that that the ending of the movie is not the ending of the play, and I think that that changes things considerably because the darker ending of of the play, the original, is much ending, more realistic. Right? It's like it's what would happen, you know, when you you have like idiots making all these big decisions. Yeah. So the, this evil plant from outer space falls into the hands of a complete moron, and now, of course, because of that, Earth is fucked. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. But then this movie just tries to make it all into a happy ending. and that- It does make it a happy ending because, you know, bas- basically somehow uh, Audrey 2 gets the gun, opens up fire, you know, and all its talons are fucking out, and it has all its little heads that it's spun like a Medusa head. And it's no match for uh, Seymour as he finds a frayed electrical wire and basically shoves it into one of the tentacles of Audrey 2 and blows it up. But it's not even that. It's more than a match for Seymour. That's the thing. Like That that fight is so one-sided in favor of the plant. Audrey 2 is just toying with him until like he lucks out. Yeah, exactly. And that's that would not happen in real life. A giant plant from outer space would happen in real life before... <laughs> Rick Moranis ever defeated a giant plant from outer space. That's like less believable. And then fucking Audrey comes in and, you know, through the dusk and debris and Armageddon, they unite and it fades into them getting wed and running away to their 50s house together. And the, the doo-wop group, the three women from the beginning, close out the film as they do kind of a jazz hands walking away. But then down to the garden we go and we see a little Audrey 2 head spun. I guess it would be Audrey 3. Yeah, I guess so. Not at all unlike the finish to Freddy vs. Jason. It was just like, fuck off. It's such a bullshit cliffhanger. Yes. Because what are you going to do next? I'm sorry, but you've already exhausted every possibility that you could have. <laughs> Larger shop of horrors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the bigger shop of horror. <laughs> the biggest shop of No, that's the third one. The, you, you were the, the trilogy is... Uh, a little Shop of Horrors, Bigger Shop of Horrors, Biggest Shop of Massive Horrors. Massive Shop of Horrors. Massive, epic Shop of Horrors <laughs> in 3D. <laughs> Directed by Michael Bay. Second one is McGee, and then the oh, third one God. is Mike, Michael Bay comes in to close it. And close it'll it be the thing where like the style. first one was like incredible, and then like you know McGee really, he took it down into the gutter, and then Michael <laughs> Bay pulled it back out, and then the phoenix rose from the ashes. It goes back to, to, to the basics of that one. It's Yeah, and people you know consider it better than The Rock, and then Massive Shop of Horrors has a Criterion release. Um, yeah, I wasn't as like bothered by this movie when we watched it as I was, as we sarcastically went <laughs> through this. <laughs> it's fun, but... Um, yeah, everything winds up happily ever after, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the the original ending in the second half. Um, but you know, just yeah, a very very, you know, it would be like in Mario, and when you finally get to the boss battle, if the entire time you're getting your ass kicked and then you jump on him one time, and- well, you don't even jump on it; the computer does it for you. Yeah, that's exactly. You you lose, but then the computer makes you win anyway. That's <laughs> that's what would happen. It's just such a like confused movie that 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 ending really fucks it all up because 
Think of where we started. We started on Skid Row being this shitty place. And so now what the movie's telling you is what? You can make the worst decisions ever and you still come out ahead mm-hmm. with a happy ending. That doesn't, that is such a. You can a literally negative. get away with murder with no consequences. Literally. I mean, he is, he let the dentist die and then he basically helped Audrey to eat. Mr. Munchkin. So <laughs> Munchkin. Munchnik. Uh, so that's like that's two deaths on his conscience. And you could argue that Steve Martin was a psychopath and he had it coming. But that's why we have a judicial system that would decide if he deserved the death penalty. And then Mr. Munchnik, he he wasn't he did not deserve to be eaten no. alive or eaten at all. He was just say. a greedy businessman. <laughs> yeah. He tried to get ahead like everybody else on Skid Row. Gave him props for at least having some initiative. Everyone underestimates Rick Moranis. Well, that that is true. That's uh, even even that giant plant learned that you underestimate Moranis at your own peril. <laughs> I think that's the best as quote as any as we can close uh, to get into some real talk. Let's do some real talk. Shop of Horrors, Christmas week end release, or Christmas week release, excuse me, December 19th, 1986, directed by Frank Oz, the director of the best Muppets movie of all, up to Take Manhattan. Uh, based, you know, this kind of Inception type shit, based off the off-Broadway play Little Shop of Horrors by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, which was based on The Little Shop of Horrors by Roger Corman. So, Who was... Uh- who was backhanded numerous times <laughs> in the previous section. even in the rotten tomatoes summation but yeah it stands at a tall and proud 90 percent on rotten tomatoes uh had a budget of 25 million dollars with a box office return of a reported 38.7 million it's cute that's it's cute is it 90 percent cute that's that's the question it's solid uh, you got some reviews for us on the... Um, not a whole lot because most people like it and it's an old movie. So there's I got three negative quotes, starting with Brian McKay from eFilmCritic.com who says, Made tolerable by Steve Martin and the talking plant. Everyone else in the films is nails on blackboard annoying. Uh, then Blake French from FilmCritic.com says, As a whole, the story is uninteresting. Most of the characters contrived, and the vast majority of the 94 minutes is almost instantly forgettable, especially the man-eating plant from outer space. That's kind of that's a little harsh. Uh, finally, Frederick and Maryam Broussat from Spirituality and Practice say, yes. The offbeat na- nature of the story, the wayward characters, and the forgettable musical numbers make the film unappealing in every way. It's a bit harsh. That That is, I mean, I don't know. At the same time, I guess, if you're not in sync with the tone of the movie, that would be just unbearable to yes. sit through. Agreed. Uh, I, I was fine with it, although I will say that this time, 
I've seen it a handful of times, and this time was the one that I was the most aware of how cartoony everything is. Not that they, mm-hmm. I mean, you always know that, but this time was the first time that it bothered me a little, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it had been since my childhood. I think in like my early teen years, I watched a, a rendition of it at uh, a local high school. But I had probably seen it in my childhood, but that was the, it's been probably close to 20 years since I've seen uh, it. Yeah, I remember I saw it in theaters when it came out. My parents took me and my brother, and they were so uncomfortable because <laughs> we were little kids, and they took us there on the strength of uh, just the marketing campaign, which was like, oh, this is the guy that did the Muppets. Mm-hmm. They were like really selling you that the plants were made by the same company that did really? the Muppets. So it made it sound like a kid's movie, at least from what I remember. Uh, and so then we're there, and there's like this dentist bidding up this woman, and it's just really awkward. <laughs> uh, to my parents' credit, slut. yeah, to my parents' credit, we sat through the entire thing, which is, you know... Admirable. Like, admirable, because, you know, we just talked about it afterwards, uh, I guess. Uh, but they were not happy. I, I remember them just being unhappy, and my brother and I were not really. We were just kind of bored, I guess, because uh, it's really not, not registering. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the plant is kind of cool, but then everything else is just like, eh, it just goes over your head if you're a kid. Like we were talking about, how awesome is it that like we grew up in a generation of in which middle schools and high schools and junior highs would do renditions of this, and it's like, would that fly in today's PC world? <laughs> no, only Avatar will. Look, mommy, my black eye. <laughs> Is that new eye makeup? Um, yeah, it, it's a very for what it is. It's a it's a fun movie. Um, like I was asking you, we were watching it. I guess I didn't really know if it had quite the cult following that, like a say Texas Chainsaw or Rocky Horror has. But I think it does. It probably still plays in theaters and yeah. I no, I, I know they they still like the place still goes up. But I I don't know. I I was I was surprised because I just realized that. I didn't remember just from having watched it when I was a kid before I rewatched it, I don't know, several years ago. I didn't even remember it was a musical. What really? I re- what I remember the most was just the big plant and the dentist beating up a woman. And that's probably because my parents made such a big deal. It's not like it. embedded in your head, little shop, nope. little shop of horse. But, you know, I, I watched it in Spanish. Not only in Spanish, but subtitled in Spanish. So, you know, really, like, it, it makes it harder for you that's to, like, true. really remember the, the lyrics. Uh, the house of horror. <laughs> what? <laughs> Where is the plant? <laughs> uh, I... I don't know. I remember for a while I had the, the soundtrack on, on... I was going to say on my ipad but no back then that was Walkman. i probably had it on my i had it on my computer and i probably burned like a cd or nice. something uh so the songs by now I, I remember a lot but what i didn't remember was just how stagey everything looks you know what i mean like we were watching it and from the very beginning gremlins we talked about that with gremlins when we did our christopher columbus episode yeah yeah and this is this is even worse because it really looks like like you're on a big stage, you know, like even from the beginning, like the, oh, the you mean like the, this, the, not just a plant, but like the oh, the whole like oh backdrop. yeah yeah okay. yeah the whole thing, the way that everything yeah, it literally is looks up. like one of the like main streets you would walk down at like Universal Studios or MGM or something like yes, that. Yes, which know? I, or movie studios. Sorry, I'm dating myself by calling it MGM. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing it's it's intentional. I, I I wouldn't think that it's accidental. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't work as well for me as if it was. Uh, it's I, what I think it's meant to give it the stage feel in terms of like a play. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's like no, this reads differently because it's a film. Yeah, uh, uh, movie. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think that if I had to guess, that's I guess that's what they were going for. It's like, well, you, you know, you know, it's a play, so and you already have a movie that mm-hmm. was like a. I mean, I haven't seen the Corman version, but I'm assuming it it looks a little more naturalistic. Uh, yeah, with Roger Corman, there's not too many frills. So <laughs> yeah, it's just it's all hidden camera. He actually he like put a camera in a dentist's office and then he just dubbed <laughs> the dialogue over it later. Hey, uh, Roger Corman's a god among men. Um, yeah. Uh, ending sucks. Like the ending really bothered me. It it doesn't bother me as much because uh, now that we're like in real talk, I can say I really like the characters. I, I I'm fine with them having a happy ending. It, yeah, but the other ending works better. It, it's darker. It, it, it I is, it, but it, it I think works it makes better. a more interesting movie, and it probably makes a more interesting statement. I I don't really know what this movie says mm. other than. Well, you know, sometimes we were even, here, like, the dumbest people can get a happy ending. Yeah, we were here, we had some laughs, and now we're going to live happily ever after. Uh, so, yeah, just for the the listeners that we have, the original ending was that they both get eaten by Audrey 2. Audrey 2 climbs the Statue of Liberty and summons the other plants from outer yeah, space. Yeah, the plants take over the world, and uh, that's still, I mean, that is what happens in the play. Basically, so, Mars attacks. <laughs> yes. And then you have a sequel later on. <laughs> uh, just Rick Moranis won't be in it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I like Moranis. I liked him a lot. Uh, I did too, man. Like he just he just has that likable quality. Even he does, and it's like we were talking about. It's a very admirable thing why he left acting, but it also feels like a loss at the same time because it feels like you just barely got to know him type of thing. Yeah, I read somewhere because it was because of the new Ghostbusters. I guess they were asking him, or they were asking. Yeah, somebody went and. Yeah. Pull him out of... <laughs> on the Moranis compound. Yeah. Well, I guess he had done like a guest spot somewhere or maybe something online. And I don't know. They were just like, hey, so are you going to be in the new Ghostbusters if they ask you? Or he was... If I remember correctly, he was just kind of like not interested. He's he's very picky with what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I guess Ghostbusters is... Why would he <laughs> at yeah. this point? Yeah. Uh, that helps. Uh, it builds to a certain amount of like not necessarily. I wouldn't use the word mystique necessarily surrounding Rick Moranis, but it makes his body of work, um, you know, stand out. Like because he kind of did what he did, and then he just kind of got up and left. And you know, he did kind of play the same character and everything he was in. But like he, and the main thing is you can't fault him for that because it wasn't like this Adam Sandler bullshit where it lasted twenty five years. It's like he had this pocket of time where he was active and. But yeah, he plays that lovable oaf so well. Yeah, and and you just go like, well, and this is the version where he sings. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he's done actually. Uh, I wouldn't, know, you know, our friend Brandon Curtis would know because uh, he is in. Uh, I think it's called Streets of Fire. The uh, fuck, we just did this guy's movie, another forty eight hours and forty eight hours. Uh, Walter Hill. Mm-hmm. I think it's a musical, and I think Moranis is in it. So Walter Hill directed a musical. I think so. Now I'm going to be like a complete asshole if I'm wrong. <laughs> but uh, how did this get made? Did an episode on it. And they made it sound like a musical. And uh, if it's a musical, I'm assuming that Moranis sings in it. But it's also like supposed to be a really bad movie. So um, so this is a good one where he sings. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fine. It is what it is. It's not a movie that I necessarily go back out of my way to watch again. But it's one that for what it is at the time it came out at, like... I wouldn't even mention this in the same breath as Muppets Take Manhattan. Like, <laughs> and I don't know. That's something that, like sidebar. I met with odd resistance at as I go into my adulthood. Like people who don't understand like really what they're talking about don't 
consider Muppet movies on the same level they would consider other movies. They think they're just, and it goes back in that whole thing of when people, oh, it's a kids movie, like right yeah. off. It's like that's such bullshit. It's like you know, um, well, this I think help. Pixar has done a lot to help kind of elevate that. Yeah, but it doesn't help that they're. A lot of bad Muppet movies. That's the problem. There are. So uh, like, I think that a lot of people just put them all together and do the average, and the average is like, oh, they're not really that good. So well, that <laughs> was the thing bother? too. I remember when Muppets Most Wanted came out, everyone was like, wow, it's not as good as the Jason Segel one. It's like, yeah, but it's a lot better than a couple of the other Muppet, <laughs> Muppet yes. movies. So, um, like, what? Uh, shit, what Muppets in Space? Yeah, that's the yeah. one, the Gonzo origin story. I think. That's, yeah, uh, and then um, Muppets Treasure Island. I know a um, friend of the podcast, Austin, who doesn't quite get our gimmick, but yeah, I remember him, him telling me like he knows Muppets Treasure Island is terrible, but he grew up on it, so he can't hate it type of thing. But yeah, that's true. But um, just kind of pulling back from all that, Frank Oz was an interesting cat. Yoda himself, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. he directed very few things, but you know, had his hand, had his finger, so to speak, in many different pies. But it's. Uh, I think this is probably what most people think of when they think of him as a director. I uh, I can't help but think of him because uh, the two like more modern movies I've seen of his. Uh, he did this uh, heist movie with Edward Norton and De Niro and uh, Marlon Brando. Fuck, what is it called? It's not the game. It's like the something. Uh, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of the what's that fucking movie with. The score. I think it's the score. Maybe it's not the score. Fuck. I don't know. Ed Norton and Matt Damon. What was that? Rollers. What? Oh, Rounders. 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 Yeah. No. No, that was not Frank Oz. <laughs> <laughs> but but Norton is kind of like doing his De Niro in that one. So I guess there is a connection. No. In this movie, where, uh, so Marlon Brando's in there for like five scenes or so. It's like a small part. But I remember reading behind the scenes stuff uh, way back then. And how Brando I mean, Brando has, had always been an asshole. I guess he's always been difficult to work oh, with. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know what he had against Frank Oz. Maybe he's just like, ah, I'm not going to respect the guy that's mostly known for working with puppets. Or I don't know. I don't know what the deal was. But basically, he just said that he would just refuse to work if Frank Oz was on set. So Frank Oz had to walk out of the set of his own movie just so Brando could just be a diva and like do the work. Yeah, Brando is whatever that fucking movie is last night and whatever. The, uh, last time in Paris. Yeah, about how he refused to learn the lines. So like, um, I forget the actress's name in that, but they would have to like write lines on her body because like most of them really? were like nude scenes and stuff like that and. Also, uh, well, the apocalypse now. Yeah, I was about to say the famous like he showed up fat as fuck and (laughs) And he didn't know his lines either. Yeah, Uh, who? Okay, okay, just getting on the sidebar. Who else in acting history has ever been able to get away with something like that? I I don't think anybody could do it this these days. No, Uh, because maybe like Judy Garland back in the pill days, but like yeah, no. But the the thing is, you can do it now because now you have you have such instant backlash. For your Jonan Hill, you have your Josh Gad. (laughs) There's so many backups that you can just. not only that, it's just the way that social media. Oh, you mean like it, how that would break? Exactly, and like, yeah. it would just it, people would know about it right away, and it would just be a disaster. Because apocalypse now is like twenty years before people knew that shit. Right, yeah. it, it, it just it was too late, uh, you know, to really be angry at it. You know, you could be outraged, but the movie was already done. You already paid your money. You already yeah, watched exactly. it. And Brando already made like five movies after that. So. Mm-hmm. All right. uh, also, I mean, Brando's really good. Uh, so you have to be really good in it's order true. to get away with it. That's, uh, 
Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, yeah. You... But but yeah, he was an asshole to Frank Oz. So I always think of that. I always think of like Frank Oz just suffering through that. And I just, I just feel bad for him. Here in uh, the stripes. Yeah. Uh, he also did, I brought it up before, the, the movie In and Out with Kevin Klein. He directed that. You have mentioned that before. Here yeah, on, yeah, on our uh, Kevin Klein episode uh, for uh, Dave. Yeah. So uh, that's what I think when I think of Frank Oz. And then I remember, oh, yeah, he's also Yoda. And he's just worked with the Muppets a lot. Yeah, um, yeah not a surprise kind of going back and reading over that box office return, how you know it made its budget back, but not too much more over. It's not a movie of mass appeal. And it does fall into that weird um, mid '80s PG-13 range of like things that wouldn't pass today. Like uh, I, I can imagine so many people just not getting the joke. You know, mm. they just go in and they're like, "What the fuck is this?" And yeah. then just walking out and going like, "Oh, this is the worst movie I've seen so far." And blah blah. blah. Uh, I, w- I would imagine that. Uh, I mean, whatever whatever audience. It has to build an audience going from movie to stage musical back to movie. There has to have been some sort of following. That, so, As much as I know and have watched of Roger Corman, I'm kind of disappointed in myself that I haven't seen the original. I, I've always been curious, but obviously not that curious. <laughs> like, oh, if they don't sing, do I really want to sit through it? It's, uh, I mean, obviously I don't have the love for Corman that you do. <laughs> Roger Corman's a great man. Um. Now, Steve Martin was amazing. Yes. Yeah. I had to think about it because he was not as amazing as I thought he was really? last time I watched it. This, I, the staginess of it just bothered me more this time, or it bothered me. It never bothered me before. And this he's, time, he's also supposed to be kind of a subtle dick, like not as big and like turn. He's not supposed to be like Chevy Chase, but like he's supposed <laughs> to be like kind of difficult to work with so. i thought you were talking in the movie i was like there's nothing subtle about oh, that no, no, performance no. <laughs> like from wh- what i've read uh, a friend of mine lent me a book about snl and it always seemed like steve martin was a guy that was kind of high in his own shit and again nothing to the levels of chevy chase but it seems like uh and especially in the films he would do you just kind of as a director and a filmmaker you kind of had to accept what you got like you couldn't like push for more type thing yeah I- in that I don't know I don't know what uh, I mean it seems like everybody's playing it like really out there uh, it's just in his case it's like you thought that you were you had finally nailed the tone of this movie and then he comes in and it's just like even higher and I wasn't kidding that's my fav- favorite musical number in the movie the it, it's really dentist, funny yeah. everything that happens is really funny it, it's just uh, and it's perfect too because no one fucking likes the dentist <laughs> <laughs> have you ever left a dentist with good news yeah, usually, dude. After, if you keep up with it, then it's good news every time. But you have to keep up with it. I, I like candy and soda and beer too much, man. I once you get into the habit, the, the, I'm not gonna say it's a pleasant experience, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a satisfying one. Once you're done, you're like, oh, it just it feels so clean, and <laughs> it's just uh, all right. Um, yeah, uh, outside of like preferring the original ending. Um, there's really not too much to complain about. It's one of the, you know, I, I hate it. It's one of those movies that we've done that we don't really have like a visceral reaction to one way or the other. I, I am honestly surprised I'm not more passionately uh, defending it or, or really going for it. I, I We forgot to mention too, um, we, and by we, I mean I specifically, 
we watched the theatrical release because we learned a huge lesson because when we did <laughs> Empire Records, we watched the director's cut and I recently had watched the theatrical release and it is a much, much, much worse movie than the director's cut. Yeah, no, no, no. This was just theatrical and it's... Uh, so so I got, where is the director's cut available? I guess a re-release the DVD or what? Yeah, when I was like flipping through Amazon, it was there. It was it was available. Cuz the thing there. is like the uh, the thing the difference is the closing sequence is like 23 minutes long. It, is that is that like so everything else is the same except for the ending? From what I understood, from what I read, yeah, it's cuz you have to watch the Audrey 2 just slug its way across New York. <laughs> oh, okay. One thing I did kind of have a complaint with is um at the beginning of the movie when uh um, Seymour's in the basement or whatever, and he's making a, a, a clatter. And uh, Mr. Mushkin yells down, "You know, Seymour, what's that noise?" He says in a really like cliche New York like Jewish type <laughs> voice, "Like not much of anything, Mr. <laughs> Mushkin." And then like he just drops it. So I thought that was kind of weird because I was expecting him to be like a Woody Allen type character. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't even notice that. I was just I was still kind of distracted by just how I'm like, holy cow! It sounds just like it looks like they're in a soundstage. <laughs> it's just funny how the like, opening it, shot. Yeah, it's clearly like painted back. Uh, yeah, but no, that entire the skid row number, where the extras are just so like, oh, these are actors just stepping to their marks and looking at the camera. And I know it's intentional, but it just didn't work for me uh, as well as it, I guess, it used to. Uh, and, and then the, the songs, I like them, but I, I think that I built up in my head a much better version of this movie <laughs> than we actually watched. It's it's been a while since I watched it, and this time I was a little underwhelmed. Uh, it's not at all like I. You're gonna flip, but I think Grease is a better musical. Fuck than... you, <laughs> no. That's I'll give this one points for originality alone. Grease is nothing, Come and on, man. and casting Grease. I, you you know my problem with Grease. My I main do know problem your problem with Grease, with Grease. is like is that you Tra- saw it way too late in life. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's I mean that's part of it. But then because of that, I just can't buy any of them as high school kids. But okay, so we were having this discussion during. So you would consider Walk the Line a musical because we we're just kind of going through like great yes. modern musicals. Yeah, South Park uh, is a great modern musical. Um, did you ever see Les Mis? Like, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So bad. It's but there's like 15 minutes of Les Mis that are just amazing. And Hathaway. Uh well, Anne Hathaway, yeah, but she's on her own, like, bit. But then towards the middle of the movie is when uh, uh, the other female character in the movie uh, does not... Well, I guess there's three main ones, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, Helen Evan Carter, then the daughter, Hugh Jackman's daughter, and then uh, the girl that's, like, jealous of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember her name, but she has, like, this one song that's just, like, all one take, and she's singing in the rain, and then she... She's just singing about, you know, her lost love or like her unrequited love. And it's but then that song leads into like another song, uh, which is kind of like a, a, a one of those numbers where like there's different people in different places, but they're all singing the same song. And it builds up to something. Dude, that is just so good Ugh. that this movie was missing one of those. And then and then that leads into the big like number uh, that everybody that knows. is like my I loathe those scenes. Do you like, do you hate it even in South Park? South Park has like that one moment. I think it's a, the the Resistance 
song where it builds up to where everybody's singing, even the, the uh, Satan is singing. Everything. Oh yeah, no, it's just like well, of course that's a musical just by proxy of parody, but like right, yeah, so um, so good. But yeah, no, Lay Miz also. There's just like, man, when I saw that fucking trailer the first time, I was just like, I did like a Liz Lemon type <laughs> eye roll. It was just like out of this world. You're just a Tom Hooper hater. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, yeah no, but I'm also so. I'm a yeah, exactly. I'm also a hater. Well, no, just to backtrack, you want to see like spoiled white kid go back to <laughs> when he won Best Director, like the reaction he has when his name is called. It's awful. Anyway. um, just kind of comparing it, yeah. It, like, give it points all around the board from Corman to this like stage performance of the movie, just for originality. It's an interesting story, and it's one that's kind of difficult to tackle. And up until the ending of the movie, it does it pretty unapologetically. It does it the way it kind of wants to, and yeah. Even and you know, give it props. It doesn't work for me, but like the Bill Murray scene, like. Give it props it's for just, doing that. No, it's just fucked up. Like the entire movie is just so weird, and, and so when when the Bill Murray thing happens, it's just like, oh, that's just another weird cameo. That's just and again, I, I don't know how big was Murray in '86. I mean, was it like to the level where you'd be like, oh, it's it's that guy? Or yeah, because yeah, it was at, like Caddyshack was the thing that made him, and Caddyshack was '83, '84. I want to say, um, maybe even been before then. So all four of the cameos are from people that you would know, oh, wow, these are people that are kind yeah. of just showing up, but they're big names, established actors. I mean, I figured John Candy definitely was by then. Mm. Uh, but all that stuff, uh, unlike what we what we said in the fake talk, what are we calling it again? Fakey talk? Fake talk? Fakey talk? I don't know. <laughs> Unreal talk? The contrarians. <laughs> but whatever we did in the first half of the uh, of the podcast, I I actually like the cameos. I think that they just add that sense of wow, this is really weird that anything can happen, and we're just not playing by any rules. So I like all that. All that stuff is is good. Yeah, I can agree with that too. Just kind of like, hey, this is what it is. So okay, eighty. I'm sorry, I didn't want to sound like a jackass. Caddyshack came out in 1980. Okay, so. but yeah, that was the thing that uh, really established Bill Murray. Okay, here's the and Ronnie Dangerfield to a certain extent. Here's the other thing. Uh, Suddenly Seymour, the song. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I like the song. I like the way it sounds and what it says. But it really, when you think about it, it, it is kind of just, you know what I mean? Like that, that he, she's, there's not much to the Audrey character to begin with. There's not. <laughs> and that move, that song, I, it never bothered me before. But this time I was watching it <laughs> and I was like, God, give her something, you yeah. know? Don't just like, it's bad enough that you're being rescued by Rick Moranis to begin with, but she has to. She doesn't even. I get you know it's just an '80s movie, but she that the ending of the movie. She's just watching him fight. Mm-hmm. She's just standing outside, looking through the window. She has absolutely no participation in in anything important that happens in the movie. Oh, fuck, we forgot to talk about the part uh, where the plant calls her. Oh. <laughs> The plant figures out how to take a quarter out of the cash register and put it in the phone and call her. And Probably the dumbest movie, the dumbest move in a movie where a lot of dumb things yeah. happen. Which I'm fine with them being dumb. That that's fine. I can buy it. But but it's but still... they, the plant like calls is like, hey baby, and she's like Seymour. <laughs> this ain't Seymour. And then so she knows she sees through the window that it's the plant, and she still goes. She over. runs over to it like, oh my god. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It's not one of the movies that we've done that you know I'm gonna be running back to rewatch. It's not one of the 
one of the movies that you and I have covered that, you know, I learned something about or grew a greater appreciation for or anything like that. But it's it's a for what it is, it's stupid fun and it knows it's stupid fun, which elevates it to something better. Yeah. I I'm I've always wanted to watch the the stage version. Uh I'm sure I'll get to someday. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. I know there's like a couple of songs that they're not in the movie mm-hmm. and of course the original ending. Uh I don't know when I would watch this again. I would like to and maybe see that if now that, you know, next time I watch it my expectations will be much lower. So maybe I'll enjoy it even more. <laughs> Whenever America gets a Blu-ray release of it. Dude, seriously. Or when they do the remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see that's the thing. I also I, I'm just spoiled. Do you realize times. how like tender footed a remake of this could be? Well, no, I would hope that they would give it to somebody with balls and they would just do it the a- way Audrey it, would run the store. She would be <laughs> played by Beyonce. Oh, okay, well that that's fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I mean, but uh, I wouldn't be fine with them like sanding off the edges and you know, stepping away from the, the really fucked up stuff. Just keep. If anything, they should make it even worse. Mm-hmm. The the dentist character should be just. So Steve McQueen directs it. <laughs> yes, Fastbender as the dentist. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> Striker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that version has no musical numbers. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> um, but yeah. So ninety percent. How how do you feel about that ninety percent? I can't argue with it because for what like it's trying to be, it's. It, it it achieves that goal and you know like the 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 finish you know the ending i have qualms with just because it doesn't really match the tone of the movie um but for you know 98 percent of the film it is exactly what it wants to be yeah i i hate that i'm not not more excited about it but 90 percent. i mean yeah if, if you know it's to me it would be like a four star four out of five mm-hmm three and a half if i was really honest with myself it's three and a half but i would give it like up to four because i know it's a better movie than what i'm perceiving right now <laughs> so on my scale because you know i do like letter letters grades. yeah it's b minus b minus that mm-hmm. sounds that sounds right yeah, yeah. Um, anything really i mean we should appreciate that we have that moranis performance just to watch whenever we want exactly it's, and you know it's plenty fun, and we forgot to mention like this was the first time in Contrarian's history where we had to like do multi-platform viewing. Because... Dude, it was. Such, I wonder if that affected my enjoyment <laughs> that we had to watch it in two parts. Yeah. Halfway through, the disc started skipping, so then we tried the disc in a different player. And then we tried to watch it through the Xbox Amazon app, and then we finally settled to we end up watching it on my laptop. <laughs> Through Amazon again. <laughs> Lots of Amazon plugs in this episode. Yeah. Uh, but we made it through. And what did I say? It's a wonderful age we live in where we can just, <laughs> we can fix this on the spot instead of having to like just run and buy a DVD. If this was 20 years ago and we had the goddamn VHS, we wouldn't even know what a podcast was. <laughs> <laughs> We'd go and talk to our friends at the, at the store. That's right. We would have our fucking at the gas station. talk boy or whatever oh, fucking okay. Macaulay Culkin had. Anyway, um, yeah, B minus. Um, but you know, we're gonna be moving on to an A plus 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 here. For, or or will we for episode thirty? And I've decided that there's no way I can even tackle the negative side of it. Really, yeah. really? Well, that's right, because you did the negative side on on episodes ten and twenty. So mm-hmm. I think I'm due to be negative. Uh, I'm gonna enjoy seeing you squirm. And then I'm going to enjoy like your heartbreak when on the second half I revealed that I've been serious the entire time and I hated the movie. You haven't seen it. You will love it. 
It's a, there's a good chance that I will. I mean, I, I really like the TV show, so. Well, don't really go into it with that mindset, but like, it is an unbelievable heist film. It's so underrated, underappreciated. It's one of those things I don't understand why it is like middle of the road on Rotten Tomatoes because it's not a bad movie. It just like really underperformed. And oh god, it's so good! I can't wait to watch it. Um, a team, Joe Carnahan, two thousand nine. Yes, because you tuned out for a second. We're not talking about a little show before us anymore. <laughs> uh, episode thirty, hitting our big one. So of course, keeping in the tradition of episodes ten and twenty, we'll be doing our gray area episode. Uh, ten was Natural Born Killers. Twenty was Scream Four. Uh, so for this, we'll be doing a team. Which off the top of my head, is it in the fifties, sixties? Uh, I want to say sixties, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's. It might be the movie that we've built up to the longest because we've been talking. I think about probably it for since like episode four or so that <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it's been mentioned because my unabashed love for it, and it's one of those that I haven't really come across anyone who like fuck that movie, but I have come across quite a few people that thought it was like really good and really got a bum rap. Um, the f- the entire first reel is the opening credits. <laughs> I remember that when I built it, but. Uh, yeah, so I'm really, really looking forward to watching that, just for, if nothing else, because Julio hasn't seen it yet. Um, but, you know, that was Little Shop of Horrors. Episode 30 will be upcoming. Um, plugs? Um, I'm not really sure if I have anything this week. I do know that we haven't been plugging our uh, email address. We are the contrarians at gmail.com. Oh, yeah, we haven't, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I do have a plug, uh, which is I w- I've been saving it for our musical episode because it's musical-themed. There's this show, Alex Mattis. You might have heard me talk about it. If not, you've definitely seen me post about it on Facebook. It's almost while he was playing, uh, while he was on, every week I would post like a new song from it. It's called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And it's just, I mean, maybe not for you because you're not 100% into musicals. But for somebody that's into musicals like me, it's just so fucking good. You have no idea. Uh it's uh i mean the story is just uh, the setup is pretty simple this this really uh uptight woman like moves she lives in new york she ends up moving to like this little town in la because she runs into her old boyfriend from summer camp and she takes that as a sign that she needs to leave her stressful life in new york and just go to this this california uh town and just kind of like go for him. She's saying that she's not moving there for him, but of course she is moving there for mm-hmm. him. And so she's a crazy ex-girlfriend because he has a life there. He has a girlfriend already and whatever. But what's genius is just what happens from then on. The 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 character relations are really good. And of course it's a musical. So there's like two or three musical numbers uh, every episode. And they're really funny. In the entire show, actually much like uh, Little Shop of Horrors, it just doesn't shy away from going really dark at times, but it's also really funny. So this girl uh, who's played by Rachel Bloom, who's also the, one of the writers, and uh, she's kind of a – she was a YouTube personality before mm-hmm. she ended up doing the show. But uh, her character is really messed up. She's she's really uh, – uh, she has a lot of like issues, and, and the way the show explores them is, is a lot of fun. So it miraculously got renewed for a second season, which was amazing. It's uh, She won the Golden Globe, Golden Globe or Nemi? She won an award for Best Comedy Actress, which I think was one of the reasons why it got renewed. Because uh, ratings haven't been great, but mm. somehow it made it through like an entire season, and they're renewing it for the second one. And all of you listening should watch that show. <laughs> There's, I mean, you can get the first season on iTunes. Uh, you can get it like me. I got it through my Xbox while he was still playing. 
Um, and I'm sure there'll be a DVD release sometime before the second season comes out, but you should really catch up with it. I've been bothering our friend Eddie mm-hmm. to get to watch it because I'm like, you watch Glee. So you really, if you watch Glee, you should watch this because this is much better. I, I haven't even seen that much Glee, but I can guarantee you that this is better than, than Glee. Um, I haven't seen that show, but I can guarantee it's better than Glee. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's my plug. Go watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend any way you can. For a while, I'm sure it'll be gone by now, but uh, they even had uh, the first season was free on iTunes for download. I'm sure it's not anymore, but it's like, what, $20 tops to watch all 18 episodes, I think, and mm-hmm. they're hour-long episodes, and they're really good, so worth watching. All right. Well, I believe that's going to clear it up for our plugs. Our usual plugs, uh, the, our music, the festive years, their album, Don't Let Me Use You. The opening song is uh, Last Stand. Closing song is uh, Summer of 1999. Outside of that, um, I believe that will do it. Uh, anything else? No. I mean, I, I don't have it in me to sing us out. Okay. So, uh, I'll, just, I'll just trust whatever clip you put in at the end. All right. Well, we'll do that. Uh, in the meantime, you know, Next episode, episode 30. Can't wait. It's going to be the Contrarians. And we're going to be doing a gray area episode on the A-Team. My God, I can't wait. But that's it for this episode. We're the Contrarians. We're right and you're wrong. And we will catch you for episode 30 for the A-Team. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. He's not and like, if it was Jim Belushi, like the whole theater would have gone, yeah, like insane. And that's why you say Paul Giamatti for that spot. Because <laughs> all the kids will go nuts when Paul Giamatti shows up. This is uh, the guy from Lady in the Water. Oh my God! <laughs> it's the Rhino. <laughs> Are we ever gonna do Twelve Years a Slave? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm capable of. Uh, Did you ever I, see it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, okay. I watched it before it opened. I, I. That's Brand, right. Yeah. Brandon Curtis and I watched I, it at the Austin Film Festival. I got a screener of it. Watched it. It's. Sidebar, it's good. It's not a, it's not a fun. It's not fun like watching, you know, Little Shop of Horrors. But no, it's, it's not. That's headline. It has a pretty iconic performance by Paul Dano. Oh yeah, that's right. He's there. Yeah, because well, he has like a fucking that, three minute like part in the movie. But yeah, and he's got yeah, he, he had that song Plantation Boogie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Plantation Boogie. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. I remember when it first came out? Uh, I kept sending you pictures of, of Paul Dano, <laughs> <laughs> and then fucking Chewy Chewetta Four Four beats the shit out of him. And I remember watching it, and going, "Yeah!" Like so happy. Uh, but yeah, um, that one best picture, right? Uh, maybe, maybe. It did, yeah, because Mercy McQueen like marked out on stage. That's right. Yeah, he yeah deserved. Did did beat Lemis? Was that the year? <laughs>
Eh, was it? Might have I don't been. know. I would just say. And the, but that was the year Gary Ullman did his Playboy interview where he like talked shit about everyone in the academy. Really? Yeah, he did that interview. He's like, oh, these fuckers think that you know if we didn't vote for Twelve Years a Slave, you're a racist, so they just voted for you anyway. <laughs> and it's like, and the he did like a tell-all interview with Playboy that like the day after it was released, he had an issue an apology for. <laughs> the most disturbing part of which was he said he did Dark Knight for the money, and I was like. Fuck you, Gary Oldman. <laughs> <laughs> a whole three of them. Yeah, exactly. You cared about it. 